With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Thanks for choosing this free Anfield Index podcast. If you'd prefer to listen to this or any of our other shows without adverts, then now's the time to check out Anfield Index Pro. With AI Pro, you can supercharge your entire listening experience. You'll not only get all of our podcasts without the ads, but you'll have them far faster with our quick publish feature available exclusively for subscribers. AI Pro also puts you in the heart of our sound studio, with an option to listen to many of our shows live and interact with the podcasters in real time as the shows are recording. Upgrading couldn't be easier. AI Pro is available on all popular podcast platforms, and we have our own apps for Apple and Android. Just head on over to AnfieldIndexPro.com and get started today. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? I'm feeling roughly £85 million with add-ons. How are you? <laughs> not too bad. Not too bad at all. Today is the day after Darwin Day. And it is now official. Darwin Nunes is a red. £64 million plus add-ons, bringing it to 85 The rumoured salary, Carl, somewhere in the region of about one hundred and forty grand a week which is about £7 million a year over a six-year contract. That's about £42 million. I would estimate the agent fees to George Mendes will be somewhere in the region of 8 to £10 million. And Darwin is probably getting a signing bonus of about a year's salary that will be spread across his contract. So all told, we're probably coming in somewhere in the ballpark of £140 to £145 million in terms of the initial commitment that we're making to this player. And that is a huge outlay for Liverpool. It's a huge outlay for FSG to sign off on. Does that does it increase the pressure on Darwin, or is pressure only an external thing? Internally, do you think it will make any difference at all to how Klopp and Co. go about his development? Don't think so no not really um i mean we've seen pretty much the same process applied if we exclude let's say and dyke and allison to pretty much everybody who's come in you know uh there's always a bit of an adaptation period some of them have come into the team straight away like salah for example or Mane, out of necessity because of what the side was like at that time but pretty much everybody has had this uh really good spell of personal development there has been a spell where they've played in different roles, maybe in different positions in the team completely. And that has gone for first-teamers, free transfers, really expensive signings, players who previously played in a really defined role at different clubs. And you only got to think of like what Shakiri did for us or Genie Wijnaldum did for us, what Mane has done across his whole course of his time. I think the development pattern has been pretty much the same. It's very, very consistent, whether it's seniors or younger players as well. And I wouldn't expect that there'd be too much difference here. I don't think we seem to have this, say, hierarchy in the squad too much, apart from 
you know that leadership group which we like is uh, like more about standard settings and if you know players do need to have a conversation anything like that there seems to be a really solid group at the very top end of that uh, in that regard but in terms of like I don't think there's too much in the way of like, treatment anywhere in particular better for one player than others or uh, you know people relied on as I don't know, maybe more protected in terms of their minutes or, or playing in the same role all the time or, you know, making sure that they feel loved or any of those sorts of things that we sometimes see at other clubs and isn't usually a very healthy thing. We do seem to just have a, a really good group of all-round footballers. I would expect that this is another addition along the same lines. Yeah, I agree. I don't think Klopp will be in any way swayed by, you know, the the, the cost at the end of the day. It's not his money. Um and they they need to spend that kind of money to to back him and get him the player he wants. And the other thing to factor as well is with Sadio going, Tacky going, Phillips likely to go, Williams going, and Oxley Chamberlain probably going. They're going to be in profit from this summer unless someone else arrives. So you know that's that means that Klopp is not going to hear anything about this internally, and all the external stuff is just noise. In terms of Darwin, I really like the idea of how flexible we can be with him. He can play up front in a 4-2-3-1. He can play in the middle of a 4-3-3. Or he could play as one of two in a 4-4-2. I think that's a really exciting thing to have is that, like I know we had Divock, but God bless him, Divock only really turned up eight times a year. Now, they'd be eight spectacular appearances but to have someone that can give us that elite level number nine every single game and give us flexibility is fun. It is, it really is. And I think it's quite an important point that you mentioned, Origi, there too. I mean, a couple of months ago, we were talking about the need to replace Mane if he left, but also the need to replace Origi if he left uh, because they were very different styles of players or styles of forwards, if you like, and there was a bit more of a, let's say, plan B for want of a better term, when we brought on Origi, we could be a bit more direct towards him than some of the others. He could just be a bit more of a, a poacher. We didn't have to look to him to do all the build-up play all the time. And I think we probably have a bit of both of those in Darwin Nunez. Um, he is someone, if, if it's necessary, we can just go a bit more direct to, or we can ask him to occupy a couple of defenders at once. But also, obviously, a lot of his goals have come in a very poachery sort of position you know there's not uh, a huge difference let's say in his shot maps that you would say an old-fashioned number nine might have for those central ones that he takes obviously the other side of it is coming in off the left channel and it's really really good to have that kind of attacker as well that's kind of the archetypal clop at liverpool sort of forward isn't it but there's a bit extra about what he's capable of doing and yet we do still have to acknowledge and temper all of that that we've said that he can do with the fact that he's not actually the very, very highest of levels right now. And I, I'm pretty firm in that we are paying for what we think we can turn him into rather than what he's shown so far. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, he had a really good season at Almeria, but that is the the second division of Spain. Obviously, the first season at Benfica was up and down, disappointing on the whole, but then it comes out that he needs knee surgery at the end of the year. So how much of that odd season is down to whatever issue he has with his knee. He gets the knee surgery and he just explodes last season. And he was absolutely phenomenal. 34 goals in all competitions. 
although the Football Daily account and many others on Twitter will try and tell you it was 32 goals, while also telling you that um, Erling Haaland scored 40 goals when he didn't either. Uh, Darwin did have a great season, but like you said, it's we are buying based on what we think he'll become. Right now, you'd probably look at it and say, well, you know, 45 would have probably probably been what he's actually worth. But it's very easy to project out and see what he could become. And I think we do that so much better than everybody else. Like, if you think about it, if at the time when we signed him, we'd spent 65 rising to 85 on Salah, people would have said we were absolutely out of our minds it would have turned out to be a bargain. People said we were crazy when we spent 75 million on Virgil. It turned out to be a bargain. The same was said about Allison. It turned out to be a bargain. Mane, etc., etc. We are very, very good at this sort of thing, at projecting out what players can become. The only one that hasn't really done it that we spent big money on is Naby. But, of course, the mitigating circumstance with Naby is that he's just been injured so often and it's altered his game. But when Naby plays, Naby's still really, really good. So it's not like they got it wrong. It's just that injuries intervened in what we had projected for him. So, the you know, that's always a, a risk with any signing. But the hope will be that Darwin, who doesn't have any history of muscle injuries, will continue to stay free of muscle injuries. And that, you know, we'll have done all the checks on the on the knee, uh, I know Brundish spoke to the physio or one of the physios at Benfica who told him, like, this guy is an absolute beast. You will not see a better physical specimen than this guy. So all of that's promising that he, he will hold up and he will be able to develop into the player that Liverpool have clearly banked on him becoming. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like you, you mentioned Cater. I, I would expect, or I would have expected, even for the best recruitment team on the planet, for by this time, one of the, let's say, 30, 35 million plus transfers to have been wrong by now, just because of what we've been used to beforehand, you know, where it was pretty much 50-50, a transfer would work or it wouldn't. And people kind of just accepted that. And we've really raised the bar just to unimaginable scales of being very, very good and very, very correct. Obviously, the difference here is it's so much money that it needs to be right it needs to be proven correct over an extended period of time um but i think that by the same token it's important to remember that three months is not an extended period of time and if he doesn't hit the ground running and score you know 17 in his first six and a half games it, it doesn't matter you know that's not what we've bought him for it's not the all and end all that he comes straight into the team is an incredible number nine wins a golden boot in the Premier League in Europe in the first season, blah, 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 blah. All of that reactionary stuff, which we're going to get anyway, let's be perfectly honest. Uh, the first time Haaland scores a hat-trick, it being before the first time Darwin scores a hat-trick and it'll be the usual, who got the better deal? And blah, blah, blah. None of that matters. It, it doesn't matter at all. This is and has always been in this management group about the continual and long-term development of players and the team, making sure that players fit in the team and come in to play the role that we want off them when they're ready for it. And I don't see that there's going to be a huge issue in that being the case this time. Now, I do think that, like I said before, that there's quite a way to go here. There's quite a long runway for improvement just on 
technical level, on movement level, obviously on adaptation to Premier League and Liverpool itself, and probably helps that. As I mentioned on the on the last pod with Guy, we've we've kind of gone and got ourselves quite a few people and a bit of a culture maybe and a few players who are either from Portugal or have been playing in Portugal over the last couple of seasons and that is maybe something that's sort of moving towards our next iteration of mm. uh, overall recruitment now that we've got Julian Ward in place obviously with his links there so it's very very exciting I have to say even if he's not at I, I would generally, in my mind, classify as an £85 million player right now. There's no reason to suspect that he can't be in the future. Uh, apart from, like you said, the fact that we are really good at projecting, I think at this point you have to give the benefit of the doubt to the people at the club, even if you're not sure, even if you have a difference of opinion, even if you think it's too expensive, even if you wanted us to sign a different shiny toy. At this point, trust is well in order. Yeah, I'm going to give you the reasons why. So these are the signings that Liverpool have made since Jurgen Klopp took over. Marco Grujic signed for 5.1 million. We sold him at over double what we paid for him. So regardless of whether he was a success on the pitch or not, we made money off it. So that is a successful transfer. Joel Matip on a free success. Sadio, 30 million. Runaway success. Ginny, 23 million. Absolute success. Ragnar Klavan for 4.2 million. Bought to be the fourth centre-back and was a decent fourth centre-back. And Laurie's Carrius, and people can shit on him all they want. That guy got us to a Champions League final and was important in us finishing fourth in the league. So I'm marking that then as a successful transfer, considering we paid under five million uh, for him. Mo Salah, thirty-seven million runaway success. Andy Robertson, eight million, one of the bargains of the century. Ox for thirty-five million. Again, you could say not a success, but Ox was going to be a success until his knee blew up. Ox's injury changed the path of his career. That, to me, is not a failure. That is something that was intervened that we couldn't have projected. Uh, Virgil, runaway success, obviously. Naby, we've talked about. He, Even if you don't feel he's been a success, you have to factor in the injuries. But I think Naby has been a very good midfielder for us when he's been on the pitch. Fabinho, runaway success. Ali, runaway success. I think Shakiri. For 13 million to come in and be a squad player, I think that he did absolutely fine. Even if it's not a success, it's certainly not a failure. Um, Sepp Vandenberg won for the future. Harvey Elliott won for the future. Adrian has been a solid goalkeeper. Like I know he, I know he had the moments against Atletico Madrid, but he also had a really good run in the league and helped us win the league title. Uh, Andy Lonergan was only bought to be a squad player. We're about to make 10 million. Of Taki Minamino. If you don't think that's a success, then you need to give your head a wobble. You don't understand how football works. Costa Simicus, success, 11 million, bought to be a backup left back and is the best backup left back in the Premier League. Thiago's been a success. We just like him to stay on the pitch a bit longer. Uh, Diogo Jota, look at the goals. Doesn't need to be talked about. Pitaluga, he's one for the future. And Ben Davies for 500 grand will probably make. Three, four million when we sell him this summer. That is also a success, regardless of the fact he'll never play a game for us. You sign players to make profit on them as well as to improve the team. That is one of the ways you say self-sustaining. And then Ibu Kanate and Luis Diaz. It's early, but I think the runaway success is that the, the early signs that both of them are going to be runaway successes. There has not been a failing 
there has not been a failed transfer with this group. You could say Carius and Clavin and um, Tacky haven't been successful, but they have, and Grujic as well, but what they've been is they've been passive transfers, two of which we're making significant money off. We're making enough money to cover the cost of the other two. Look at it that way. And then with, with Ox and with Naby, it is very much just the injury things. Like Ox was in really good form until the Roma game when his knee exploded. He was in really good form. And Naby, when he's gotten consistent runs in the team, has been really good. Naby was outstanding this past season. And when we have one of Naby or Thiago in the team, we're a completely different team than when neither of them are there. I think ideally moving forward, you just platoon them in the one role where it's one or the other has to be on the pitch. So you don't play the two of them unless it's the Champions League final, in which case, yeah, you start both of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you disagree, Carol? Do you think has there been anybody that you would say that's a failed transfer? Because I don't see one. Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, there's different levels of success, isn't there? I mean, you've you've clarified uh, you've uh, sort of put Carius in there as a, a success, where maybe other people would define it as not a success because of the, how the way it ended and what went on and all the rest of it. Yeah, the fact that we didn't make any money on him, and that's that's fine. But I, I still think there's a difference between a failure and only a bit of a success, or not as much as a success. You could even say hungry. it was just a passive transfer. Like yeah. it's definitely not a failure. I I just can't see how you could claim it was a failure. To pay four point seven million for for a goalkeeper who gets you to a Champions League final and is really important in getting you fourth in the league, to me, yes, it all ended very badly. But you have to look at everything. You can't just judge the guy on one night in Kiev. No, like I said, there's there's, there's a big difference between a failure and not the success that was hoped for. You know, there, there is a huge gap there, and plus, you know, even on the financial side of things, between the the loan fee that Besiktas paid for two years and then obviously his smaller loans afterwards back to the Bundesliga, we probably more or less broke even across fees, if not exactly. selling the rest of it. So it's not the end of the world. And like I said, at this point, you would probably expect there to be a handful of failures or, or didn't do as well as was hoped for anyway, just by the nature of what football is and transfers and injuries and everything that goes with it. So if you've got people who have suffered long-term injuries and they're still not outright failures or people who have had consistent injuries really, really debilitating stoppages and unable to earn a place in the team, and they still could be a success in future, I think you're doing pretty well, to be honest. Same. And just to give people an example of how things used to be before Jurgen Klopp took took over, in the two summers before Klopp, Ricky Lambert, flop, Adam Lallana, flop, Lazar Markovic, flop, uh, Dejan Lovren, flop, Mario Balotelli, flop, Nathaniel Klein flop and Christian Benteke. Now, we got our money back on Benteke. So for that reason, that reason alone, it's a passive transfer. But the rest of them were flops. That's that's all in the space of 13 months we signed all of those players. And most of them were shit. So, you know, the the level of how things have improved since Jurgen Klopp took over is is just incredible. And um, we should all be very thankful that Klopp and Michael Edwards were just very much on the same wavelength. And hopefully 
Klopp and Julian Ward, and I'd imagine Klopp signed off on the promotion of Julian Ward as he did when Michael Edwards was given the the sporting director title. Um, so you'd imagine there's a good relationship there, and I also think we're probably seeing a bit more of the influence of Pep and Linders and Vitor Matas, who obviously have well, Matas is Portuguese, and and Pep and worked there for for a long time, they're probably playing quite a part in some of the recruitment as well because they'll also have their contacts in Portugal. They'll have people letting them know, look look at this player, look at that player. And that, as you mentioned, Julian Ward has very strong connections to the area. Those type of things, those, those three may well be playing quite a key role in our recruitment at the minute. And we have been linked to a couple of others from Portugal, uh, Fabio Vieira, Vitinha, uh, Pedro Concalves, and of course, Matias Nunes. Um, so it may well be that we just sign all the Portuguese lads. Obviously, David Carmo was also linked in January. So it may well be that there will be a, a strong influx of Portuguese players or Portuguese-based players in the coming years. And it's no bad thing. The talent in that country is unbelievable. They are very much in in a hot streak of producing elite-level talents right now. Oh, but it's not only Portugal. That's the thing. It's, it's you know, the countries and the connections that those bigger clubs have in South America, for example, you always get a real good pathway from Brazil mm. to Portugal and then to elsewhere in Europe because of the, the language and everything else. And I, I would be not surprised in the slightest if that was sort of the route that we take, you know, a little bit towards... South America, obviously, Luis Diaz has come from South America to Portugal, to England, and we've been linked with a whole load of younger Brazilian talents as well, of course, uh, already this year, um, who haven't even left the continent yet. So wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. It's a little bit easier to sign those players now that there's not uh, work permit rules quite the same way as it was before. Obviously, now have to a little bit different in terms of the ages that you can bring someone in as well, but you can still get those younger talents first off without having to go through that old work work permit process. Yeah, for sure. And look, we could we could maybe you know get a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink by a partnership going with one of the Portuguese clubs. With be it Benfica, be it Porto, be it Sporting, where you know we get a first option on players that they've brought in from South America and they've helped uh, develop. And, and through that development, they'll earn the eligibility towards the the new Brexit laws, which actually, to be fair, actually go in the favour of clubs signing players because they do make it easier now. It's the the, the need for... 75% of caps in the last however long, that's gone. If a player has been capped, if a player has been, has played in the Champions League and has played in a, a domestic league of a certain level, which Portugal is a high level, they will have enough points to qualify to get a work permit in the UK. Um, and like you said, I mean, look, the one thing that we've always said about Benfica and Porto is their recruitment is exceptional. They've always been really, really strong. Now, Benfica lost their way a little bit, but they've also got one of the best academies in Europe. If we look at the players that have come through that academy in the last six, seven years, it's outstanding. And I said this the other day, Carl, and I don't know if you agree, but I look at the players that have come from Portugal, either directly or with, say, one in-between move, like a Bernardo Silva going to Monaco 
and coming. And they seem to have settled in English football a lot quicker than, say, players who've come from Germany. So Bruno, Ruben Diaz and Luis Diaz all came directly from Portugal into England and hit the ground running as if it was nothing. Whereas, you know, you look at the likes of Timo Werner and Sancho and Kai Havertz, and they've all had struggles coming from the Bundesliga. Now, the Bundesliga is, for now, a stronger league than the Portuguese Premier League, but the gulf is not all that big. I think it's quite close between those two leagues, and maybe there's more suitability from the Portuguese league right now into the Premier League than there is from the Bundesliga. Well, there That's you go, Ederson, Ederson, Neves, Jota. They all came. So now I know Jota was bought by Atletico Madrid and then loaned, but uh, loaned straight to Wolves. But Neves came over from from Portugal, from Porto, direct to Wolves. Ederson came over, and it, it just settled in straight away. It does does seem to be, uh, I think, good overall recruitment and, and choosing from that nation, from the Premier League sides in general. And obviously it probably helps as well that we've seen, you know, the culture, the um, nationality groupings that we've seen at some clubs that we've just spoken about, like Liverpool's, we've obviously got similar at Man City and similar at Wolves, very much so. Uh, and probably that does ease the passage, especially when you consider that off the pitch, players don't just congregate with players from their own team, but also those in the surrounding areas. Yeah, well, if you think about it, when... When Suarez was at the club, there was the little Suarez, Lucas, Sebastian Cuates group that would get together away. We know that that Bobby and Ali and Fab and Thiago all spend a lot of time together away. Obviously, Thiago is part Brazilian because of his dad and speaks fluent Portuguese. So he also speaks Spanish, which is which helps with Diaz. It will help with Nunes. So you'll have a nice little group of players there. And obviously, Fabio Carvalho coming in this summer as well. Um, he's another Portuguese player. So there's that. There's obviously Diogo Jota as well. So, yeah, we are building this nice little, um, I don't know, are we Wolves 2.0 with all these Portuguese-speaking players? Is, is that, That's not a bad thing. No, I mean, I don't expect it to go quite to the uh, extent of that, because obviously we... <laughs> so our away kid is not going else. to be a, a Portuguese kid then, no? No, probably not. That's a shame. That's a shame. Um, right. Look. Liverpool have two signings done, Carvalho and Darwin. I think there's reason to be very excited about both. Obviously, Carvalho is a younger player. It does look like Calvin Ramsey will be the next one in, so that will fill that backup right back spot that we've been we've been looking to to upgrade. And we'll wait and see then what else happens. We're one of a few clubs, Carl, that's getting business done this early. Uh, so I wanted to get your thoughts on the other clubs who have done bits and pieces so far this summer. So let's start with Aston Villa. Um, Phil Coutinho, deal made permanent. Robin Olsen, deal made permanent. And then there's sort of two big new incomings. They've also signed Diego Carlos for £26 million from Sevilla. And then Bubakar Kamara from Marseille on a Bosman. They're the kind of two big gets that they've managed this summer. 
What are your thoughts on Villa's business on the whole? And is there any of those individual deals that you like or dislike? There are two of them I like in particular, and that's the top two, Coutinho and Kamara. I think whoever got Kamara this summer was going to get themselves a really, really nice addition to the squad. Um, kind of similar to the Bruno Gimardish one midway through last season in that I thought there should have been more teams interested and more teams willing to you know, take the fight to sign him and probably even go a bit higher if the transfer fee required it. I think Villa are going to absolutely love having done this deal, to be honest. Uh, Coutinho is a no-brainer because of the talent that he has. He can elevate other players. He can raise the profile of the club and the team and help attract other people. And he's just very, very good when he's on it. Obviously, there are still a little bit of uh, maybe consistency issues there for him. He's obviously playing in a slightly lower quality team than he's used to which is fine and also he hasn't played very regularly for a while which is also fine but I do hope that for him because he's such such a talented player and so fun to watch when he's on it I, I hope he can rediscover some sort of top form in uh, game weeks where they're not playing Liverpool preferably um, the other two I don't really care about in the slightest I mean I guess Diego Carlos is going to be a starter but I've never been a fan I, I really mm don't like him he's not my type of defender at all I think he's rash I think he has not improved from I say three four years ago when he was probably in that sort of not not at his peak but at the point where you should probably be learning the most possible to get towards your peak and I just think that there are better defenders around for that price and even much less Robin Olsen's a backup so it's neither here nor there yeah Robin Olsen is is just you know, it's maintenance of the squad. It's continuity from last season. There's no point in going and finding a backup goalkeeper when you've already got a, a decent enough one in the door. I wouldn't be a huge fan of the Carlos signing either. It is notable that Villa got him for 26 million when, you know, there was talk of 50 million last summer and 60 million. So he, there's, there's bits of his game I do like, but there is, well, there's there's quite a bit of Lovren in him. And as we know, any Lovren is too much Lovren. And he's caught more than you'd want. Uh, like you, I like the Coutinho deal and I love the Bubakar Kamara deal. I think that is, that, that is the steal of the summer. I don't think anyone's doing a better deal than that. Uh, moving on then to Leeds United. So Brendan Aronson is in. Rasmus Christensen is in. That'll fill that right-back spot because Luke Ayling's just not good enough at this level. And it looks like Mark Rocha is on his way from Bayern Munich as well. Now, it, that deal looks good if he's to play next to Calvin Phillips. If he's the replacement for Calvin Phillips, that, I think, is a downgrade and they'll need to add one more in midfield. But Aronson, Christensen, Rocha, what are your thoughts on those three? Uh, decent. Uh... I don't mind Rocco at all. I think he's he's fine. He was never at the level for, for a Bayern Munich, let's be perfectly honest. But uh, coming back to Leeds probably should help them be a bit more organised and a bit more solid off the ball and in transition play, which is something they've desperately needed. Pretty interesting, obviously, a double deal with, with Salzburg and, and the way that that suggests that they're still going to be looking at playing and so on. Uh, Aronson, I've not actually seen too much of, but I know he comes like ridiculously highly rated and there are a few people who are convinced he's going to be a major major addition to you know some top team in the future Christensen on the other hand I've watched play for a long time and I, I do like him I think he's a very solid player you can play him pretty much anywhere you want along the back line I think 
And uh, I, I, like you say, that there was a need there, quite a clear need to this season replace a few of the players they brought with them from the championship, probably. And I can only assume that this is a step in the right direction in that regard. I think there's a, quite a lot more work that Leeds need here still this summer, to mm. be perfectly honest. I think that the squad depth last year was a real challenge for them when, like, three main players were injured and I know they did have like other injuries to squad players as well but those squad players were always like put into place wherever they were needed they were never game changers or game breakers or anything like that I think there's quite a quite a big need for Leeds to upgrade if they don't want another relegation struggle this season I also am wondering why you don't want to discuss Arsenal because they haven't done anything Marquinhos they're claiming it's done this is Marquinhos, the, the three million pound winger hmm. from Port from Brazil, who, from what I know, is actually out of contract and had agreed to join Wolves. And Wolves think and he's agreed to join Wolves as well. Wolves, yeah, Wolves think they have an agreement with him. Arsenal are paying three million, and uh, he apparently is signed for them as well. So I, I think this is going to end up quite messy. I wonder could we be looking at another John Obi Mikel type situation? Or um, who's the guy that went and signed for Watford and then signed for Marseille? Um, God. Uh, Papa something, I can't remember his name. But this is, like, this. I think this is going to get messy. Now, I I, I have not seen a single minute of this kid. I have no idea if he's any good. Um, Edu, to me, doesn't seem to have a great eye for talent, but... I'm sure he's got decent contacts in Brazil, so I'm sure they'll have told him, um, you know, that this kid is worth getting in. But I don't know. Like, do you know anything about him? Do you, do you think if do you, th- do you think this is going to get messy? So I've not watched him, but I spoke to one of my um, colleagues, if you like, over in uh, Brazil about him because he, he covered Sao Paulo last season quite a lot, and he said that the basically the idea was last season he was using it as a stepping stone into the team. So coming in and out and showing that he was good and capable and quite an exciting player. But the idea wasn't to use him as a first team until this season. And so a couple of the coaches there are like very, very annoyed with the board and with the, with the club as such for allowing him to leave. Basically, I know he was going to be out of contract, but there was supposedly an agreement already there in place for him to stay, extend and be a first teamer with a, a bigger release clause there. So Seems to be some internal battles at Sao Paulo over this deal as well as between Wolves and Arsenal. Um, So I don't know in terms of the player, but if you look at Arsenal and what they've done over the last couple of years, Gabriel Martinelli is obviously the reference point here in terms of a young Brazilian who's come straight from that country. And Mm. presumably they'd have had a a similar profile or or process to put in place as to whether they think he's going to be good enough. And considering the potential legal stuff, they must be fairly convinced about him. Yeah, they're going to have to be, aren't they? Now, look, it may well be that it turns out that what Wolves have is, you know, it, it isn't a full agreement and they don't have anything legally binding. So we'll wait and see. But Wolves do seem to think they have a case on this. Um, so it, it could get it could get quite messy. Um, Brentford have done nothing. Brighton, nothing so far. Burnley are obviously gone. Chelsea, nothing so far. Palace, nothing so far. We'll save the best for last. Leicester, nothing so far. We've talked about Liverpool. Manchester City. Uh, Erling Haaland signed. Uh, Julian Alvarez signed. It looks like Calvin Phillips could be next. And they're also being strongly linked to Mark Cucurella. Now, I would have said a backup right back. 
was more needed than a backup left back, preferably someone of a similar maybe profile to Kyle Walker, whose recovery pace they do miss when he's not there. And Zinchenko, I think, is is a good left back, even though he's more of a midfielder. Um, I'm sure you've given your thoughts on Haaland, but quickly on Haaland, on Alvarez, and, and what you think of the Calvin Phillips and Cucurella links to them. Mm, Haaland. Uh, I'm disappointed he's gone there. I love Haaland, to be perfectly honest. And expect he'll get about 350 goals next season. That's simple as that. I, I think there'll be a few games where he just takes really, really bad defenders to the cleaners. Uh, and if we consider how the likes of Leeds defended last year, for example, or the likes of Nottingham Forest coming up, if they put together either a new back line who haven't had a lot of time to, to work with each other or leave the championship defence in line, um, if any of those kinds of teams play Man City early on and catch Haaland fit and really trying to make an impression, it could get worrying, that's all I'll say. I know that there are a lot of people trying to downplay what he's done and all the rest of it. This guy is phenomenal. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not having it any is. other way. It's, he's unreal how good he is. So, disappointing, but you know, same thing applies as always. Not every player is amazing every single game, and when you do play against them or when you're trying to catch them for the title or whatever it is, yeah, it's still all about the rest of the players as well. It's rarely just one player or one action which will win a game. And uh, Liverpool have to try and be better all round if they can't in terms of just one single player. So not not the end of the world in terms of the title race or anything like that, but there's just no question that this is not a transfer that anybody should be attempting to play down. It's a great capture for the Premier League as long as you don't want Man City to score a lot of goals, which unfortunately is not the case for us. Um, Alvarez, I actually haven't watched too much of Alvarez I've only seen a couple of games of him so I'm mm. perfectly happy to just wait and uh, hang fire on what I think about him um, overall City I presume, like you say, they're going to bring in those two positions, whichever players they end up being uh, full back and a centre mid because Fernandinho is obviously a pretty big loss and again, even Man City I could have thought look at Kamara maybe because I mean yeah, obviously not like in terms of Taking forward or, or being someone who's going to pick passes ridiculously well from deep. But for Pep to have that player who can play defensive mid, who can slot in at centre-back as well, he loves all that crap. And playing out, and Kamara's short passing range is really good. Uh, I thought that would have been a, a really decent sort of squad addition in, in the way that Nathan Ake they went for, for example. Someone who can play multiple roles, be pretty reliable across the board as long as you're not got him playing you know, 10, 15 games in a row, something like that. Um, so we'll see. I, I do expect them to get another couple before the summer's out. Yeah, I think Kamara could have brought them some leadership as well because they've lost a lot of leadership from that squad in the last few years and Kamara was captaining Marseille at 17. Um, I, look, Haaland's going to be... He's ridiculous. He's, he is ridiculous. But what I will say is it's a bigger adjustment for City to change how they play to get the best of him than it is for us to change how we play to get the best of Darwin. And like I said, the, the total cost of the Darwin deal is going to be somewhere in that 140 to 145 million pound range. The total cost of this Haaland deal is well in excess of 200 million. It's whatever, 60 million to the club. There's some add-ons there. Um, to bring it to about 70, you've got, the 30 million to the agent, you've got 20 million to his dad for whatever reason, I don't know. It is mad that Alfie Haaland is probably going to make three times as much from this deal than he did from his own playing career. 
You've got a signing bonus to Erling Haaland, which will be about 20 million, and then 20 million a year for five years. So you're looking at somewhere in the region of 240 million all in, um, plus bonuses. And obviously, there'll be bonuses for Darwin as well. But this Haaland deal is very, very expensive. And there is a buyout in his contract as well, which James Ducker says is somewhere between 125 million and 175 million. And I would guess it's at the lower end of that. So City don't control their own faith with him. So while he is a great signing and they will get a ton of goals out of him, in two years he can up and leave. If he decides he wants to go somewhere, if Pep has left, there's no guarantee he's still there. So, you know, they can afford to do that. We couldn't have afforded to do that deal. We couldn't have afforded to commit all that money to Erling Haaland to then risk him deciding in two years, well, Real want me now, so I'm away. So, you know, it does come with its own different types of risks. Um, United have done nothing. They are sitting on their hands, very upset that we've stolen Darwin from them. They think they're getting Frankie de Jong. I have my doubts. Uh, Frankie de Jong to United, do you think it happens? And if so, um, how badly is that going to fail if they don't put a, a, a proper ball winner in next to him? Uh, I, th- I think there's quite a lot to fail there if they don't do several things, to be perfectly blunt. I don't think that this is a one-window fix, do you? No, 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 no. This is, this is, like, realistically, if you were taking that job, you'd need to be certain that no matter what happens in the first two years, you were getting years three and four. Because it's going to take two years to get rid of all the crap that's there and to change the culture of the dressing room. Like, you're going to lose year one because you're stuck with Cristiano. And if you're Eric Ten Hag, there's no way you're happy with that because he doesn't fit at all what you want to do. So you're going to have to live with that for year one. So you're not really going to start to implement what you want to do until year two. That's going to be shaky as players learn what you want them doing. So it's year three and year four where you're really going to start to see what it is Eric Ten Hag's Manchester United is going to look like. And like I said, you've got to sort that dressing room out as well. There's a lot of players there who are very privileged and have taken full advantage of that privilege. You've got a messy leadership situation where your captain likely isn't going to be part of your team uh, and is also an £80 million player, which further complicates things. So I think it's a, I think it's a really tough job. I think he's made a big mistake. I think he'd have been better off waiting at Ajax for Pep to see out his time at City and going there. But he's made this decision and he'll have to live by it. I'll be surprised if he's still United manager in three years. Because I don't think they'll give him the time that he needs. Odds are you going to give on Ronaldo extending or outlasting Ten Hag? Oh... Well, considering he's just paid off a judge in America, I do wonder if there's an MLS move in his future. But, I mean, it's possible. I mean, you know how stupid they are at that club. They're, they're so badly run. There's no organization. There's no, there's no real structure. Nobody with a clue. Everybody in positions of importance on the football side are massively underqualified for their roles. So if, if Cristiano has another season next year, like the one he had this season, where he is both arsonist and fireman, um, I, I think there's a decent chance they do extend him for a year. 
And I, I kind of feel like he'll be open to because they're paying him $26 million a year. I mean, no one else is going to give him that money unless he goes to the Middle East, which, again, is possible. But I would say the chances of him outlasting Ten Hag are low, but it wouldn't surprise me if they were stupid enough to give him another year after this one. Be a fun and games to look forward to at that club this season anyway. It will be obviously um, not something to draw too many conclusions from but an early eye opener I think when we play them pre-season. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And their fans are going to be really excited about like the v- very basic pattern of play let alone, you know, anything that Ten Hag might do post-Cristiano. Um, moving on to Newcastle United, they have brought in Matt Target who they had on loan Nothing very exciting about that. Uh, their bigger moves are probably still to come. Uh, Norwich are gone. Saints have done nout. Tottenham have been busy little bees. They have signed Fraser Forster from Southampton to be their new backup goalkeeper. They've brought in Ivan Perisic from Inter Milan on a Bosman. And it looks like they're about to land Yves Basuma. Carl, I quite like the Perisic and Basuma deals especially Basuma at $25 million. I know there's the legal issues hanging over him, but I assume they've done their due diligence on this and they have some sort of inside track. There's been very little said publicly. Um, what do you make of Perisic and Basuma to Spurs? Uh, my favourite deal is the Fraser Forster one because we can stop finally having the same conversation every time we play Southampton about how we don't know <laughs> who'll be in goal. Uh, Perisic, really, really good. Really, really good. Um, as a wing-back, I... I mean, rewind what four or five years ago. I don't. I don't think I would have picked him out as a winger who would transition to a wing back particularly well. But he's so much more hard working, really, really selfless. Does his defensive stuff like fully aggressively, like he basically did with Croatia all the time. Now he does at club level all the time. So obviously, a, a huge amount of trust there with Antonio Conte. That's pretty much a, a much a guaranteed win as you can get when it's a free transfer anyway. Uh, I don't foresee there being any problems there at all, unless your name happens to be Sergio Reguilon. Then maybe that's a a transfer which is coming this summer. Yeah, I think that's possible, that he is the one who's away. Um, Perisic, of course, can play right wing back as well, although they they are apparently keen on Jed Spence uh, to come in for that role. But yeah, I mean... Just a really good, a really good addition. What do you think of Basuma? Basuma and Bentoncourt is a midfield I like, and it's a midfield that they'll have put together for about forty-five million, plus Hoysberg, plus Skip, plus Papa Matar Sar. That's a really strong midfield group, Carl. And they may yeah. add Christian Eriksen as well. They might, and they might also bring back Tangi and Dombele, Although I guess they probably won't. Um, I suppose. The big thing here is that it should be able to see them rotate two from three and it not really affect the level or the jobs that they do. Because last year it was, you know, obviously once Conte came in, it was Bentancourt and Hoiberg. And that was fine, really aggressive, very ball winning, pretty much a platform rather than anything to, to really play through too often. But anytime they had to make a change, it was someone like Ollie Skip coming in, who's a very different type of player. Um, and that's that's okay. I, I, I think Ollie Skip had a better season than Harry Winks, for example. And I don't really think that Harry Winks is a type of centre mid who's going to fit Conte and the way he's tried to play with Spurs or Inter. So maybe he's one who has to depart. But having 
three players who play very, very similar in terms of their ball winning and positioning and playing behind play basically most of the time, I think is a, mm. a big positive. In terms of Basuma himself, it's not too long ago that we were quite heavily linked with him, obviously. Uh, I do see him as slightly more of a an advanced player, much more of a, a roving, rampaging, destroying, ball-winning eight rather than a six-sitter, who I think Bentoncourt and Hoiberg can both play that role quite well. Uh, but again, you know, later on we've seen Antonio Conte in matches where it's mostly four and where they're playing against a big rival and maybe they're only ahead by a goal. He really locks down that midfield and that, again, gives yeah. them the opportunity to do that with three destroyers. Mm. That's the thing. I mean, look, he, when, when Conte first became you know a, a manager of note, it was with Arturo Vidal. Now, I, I don't think Basuma is Vidal, but he can fulfil that role, that advanced destroyer who just, you know, roam around the field bullying people. He obviously had success using Kante in that way. He's used Barella in that way. I, I think Basuma is going to be a really good signing for them. Um, Basuma, Bentoncourt, Hoisberg, Skip and Matar Sar, they put that midfield together for about 70 million. Um, they'll get He'll get 15 for Harry Winks. He's an English international. Some Frankie Dettori will pay 15 million from. They'll get, they're getting, I think, 20 million from Villarreal for uh, LaSalle. So it's obviously a, a loss on what they paid, but it's still money coming in. And Paratici and Conte can just point to the fact that, well, we didn't sign him. And the same thing with Endembele. They'll lose a lot of money, but they could get 20, 25 million for him. And all of a sudden, They've put together a brand new midfield over the last couple of seasons for in around fifteen million pounds, which isn't bad going at all. Um, it's something we'd be quite proud of. And obviously, if they add Ericsson, well, that gives them the opportunity for flexibility, where they can play the three-four-three with Kulusevski, Kane, and Son up front, and Basuma and Bentancur in midfield, or they can go three-five-two and put Ericsson in with Basuma and Bentancur and just play Kane and Son up front, which is possibly going to be an option in certain games where he wants more control in that midfield. So, yeah, I, I like what Spurs are doing so far. And like you say, uh, Fraser Forster no longer being at Southampton uh, probably makes life a little bit easier for Ralph Hasenhutley. doesn't have to decide which mediocre goalkeeper to go with on that day. Uh, last but not least, I have saved this one for last. It's Everton Football Club. Uh, not done yet, but it does look like James Tarkovsky is joining on a free. I think that's a really good get for Everton. I think he is. Well, I think he's had better offers. I think Villa was a better offer. West Ham was a better offer. For him to choose Everton is a good sign for them. I think him and Godfrey could be the long, well, not, you don't know, long term because Tarkovsky's 29, but, you know, they could get three, four good years out of that partnership. I think Tarkovsky is more reliable than Yerry Mina. Doesn't have Mina's ceiling, but I think game to game is more consistent. I, I like the Tarkovsky deal, I have to say. Yeah, decent. I mean, obviously the dream is that they get him and uh, Keane back up and go full Burnley, but I don't think that that would probably <laughs> be the case. One, one not concern, but so much um, musing, I suppose, is whether Lampard persists with the back three at times. That I don't know how much that would suit Tarkovsky. Uh, in the middle of the three would probably be his role, if so. But then you're removing 
Keane and Mina, who both probably are best in that role as well, if you do want to get anything out of them at all. So it does feel like his arrival effectively rules out at least one of those two from playing at all. Um, you know, mm. I wonder just... if Mina might want to leave. Possibly. I mean, I wonder if quite a few players would want to leave that club at this point, because <laughs> it's been a bit of a mess, to be honest, over the last few years on and off the pitch. Um, and of course there's talk of a takeover so you know if that does happen to go through and if it goes through quickly then they could find themselves basically told you're not playing anymore this season because we're going out and we're spending another bit of money and we're bringing in someone for your position so a lot of uncertainty there getting one or two deals done which are smart whoever the boss is whoever their owner is whatever level of funds that they've got for this window or next I think is pretty good business on their part and uh, well I don't like the phrase, but Premier League proven is pretty much stamped across Tarkovsky's forehead, isn't it? It is. It very much is. Um, yeah, I, I think like, if he's going to play a back three, Godfrey, Tarkovsky and Michael Enko is, is a pretty decent three under the right manager. Obviously, I just don't think Frank is the right manager. But like you said, it would mean that there's no real role for Mina and Keane. You could have Keane as the backup to... Um, to Tarkovsky in that central role. But then, you know, you've got Mason Holgate, say, as the backup to to Godfrey. And I suppose he could cover the other side as well. But you'd, if you're going to play six centre-backs, you ideally, or if you're going to play three centre-backs, you ideally want six centre-backs, the club. And maybe they'll view Jarrett Branthwaite as, the, as, you know, decent enough backup on the left-hand side. And if so, that's fine. But then you just sell Mina or Keane and be done with it. Uh, and of course... The final deal then, this is the one I've kept for last. This is the one that I know you're looking to talk about. Asmir Begovic signing on for another year as a free agent. Carl, this is a this is a big get for a club like Everton. Yeah, I agree. Um, again, I think that the bigger questions here are who is he going to stop playing in the team? Where is he going to fit in the team to have the people around him as well? Um, um, who would you have around it? Literally, if you were picking, if you had a big game tomorrow, who is he partnering? Anyone. Anyone. Look at this guy's track record. Look at what he's done in his career. Look at what people think he's done, more to the point. Because <clears throat> for many years, you have fought against the growing tide of Asmir Begovic as a good goalkeeper. Nonsense. You were almost drowned by this nonsense at one point, especially when Bournemouth decided to pay real currency to sign him from Stoke. Uh, and now he ends up at our dearly beloved Everton, um, having, having been largely disastrous everywhere he's been along the way. And, you know, what's different from this to the Robin Olsen deal is we don't really know. Like, Robin Olsen has shown he's a decent goalkeeper. Um, Asmir Begovic has shown completely the opposite and Everton have had a front row seat to watching this guy and have still decided we're going to keep him like they own a, a very good young goalkeeper in Joe Virginia and yet they seem to be intent on selling him in order to keep this fella in the same way they were intent on selling Moise Keane to bring in Solomon Rondon it, make it make sense to me can't you've just started the sentence by talking about Asmir Begovic there isn't any sense involved none none whatsoever it's Asmir Binovic that's all it, it is. is 
Honestly, this I I speak quite often about the fact that I struggle to see sometimes uh, with very young goalkeepers where their you know ceiling could be or what their best traits are because a lot of the time it's just about shot stopping and stuff and that's like basic goalkeeping, isn't it? If you can't shot stop, you aren't a goalkeeper. That's that's the starting point for it. But there's nothing that Benovic. I'm even calling him that now on the podcast. Begovic does well. He's he's a disaster. He always has been. Positionally, distribution, handling. He's at the perfect club. It's actually quite surprising the career he's had. Portsmouth obviously <laughs> came, came through the Portsmouth Academy. Uh, well, he, they signed him at, at what age? 17. Uh, made his first team debut. Had loads of loans, six of them. Went to Stoke for $3.25 million. And was first choice there for five years. Chelsea signed him. I forgot about this. Chelsea signed him for eight million pounds. And then sold him to Bournemouth two years later for, I think, somewhere in the region of about 10 million pounds. Uh, he had a loan to Quarabeg, which will tell you how his career was going. He was sent to Azerbaijan after two years. Uh, and then somehow ended up on loan at AC Milan. Came back, became first choice for Bournemouth again in a strange decision by people like Jonathan Woodgate and whoever else was there. What was the other fellow's name? The Jason Tyndall? Yeah. And then um, and then he ends up with the Ev. Uh, 35 in a few days. So uh, a happy birthday to him. Uh, but Jesus Christ, like, what, what are we doing that this fella is still employed by a Premier League club? At least... Yeah. Let's hope he they need to a homegrown player. Let's hope they need to call upon him. That's all I can say. That would be good. It would be good. He does count as a homegrown player, I believe, because he was in England for four years before his twenty-first birthday. But he did spend. No, he was. Yeah, no, he he does count as a homegrown player. Is my assumption. So you know, quota purposes. Um, right, we leave it there. Do you have anything you want to plug? There's nothing to plug. You are now going on holiday. Tell us where you're globe trotting. Oh, all over for a little bit, hopefully, assuming airports, you know, do the nice thing and actually let me through. Uh, a few people have had trouble with that. So fingers crossed, I will be off to stateside first and then probably over to see the family in Spain. It's the close season after all. Exactly, exactly. My only advice would be don't travel through Dublin airport or you will never, ever, ever get out. They will never let you through. They're just... A terrible bunch of lads. Anyway. Right. If I end up in Dublin Airport, one of my travels has gone badly wrong. If you end up in Dublin Airport, give me a shout. I'll come pick you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Radio, we will leave it there. We will probably throw something out while Carl's away as well, myself and Guy, because, you know, this, this fella's a part-time podcaster, you know, full-time globetrotter. So uh, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this Anfield Index show. Please be sure to subscribe to our channel so future podcasts find their way to your device automatically. There's nothing quite like fan engagement, and we'd love to know what you think of anything discussed on this show. The best way to get in touch is over on our free Discord community, where both podcasters and listeners debate the hottest LFC topics 24-7. Sign up free now at anfieldindex.com forward slash discord. You won't regret it. You can also follow us on Twitter at Anfield Index and find us on Facebook by searching for Anfield Index. Oh, and before you go, 
we'd love it if you could leave us a five-star review on your favourite podcast app. It only takes a couple of seconds, and it means the world to the people who create these free shows. Sports Social Podcast Network.